Hello and welcome to Eyes on Research, the podcast that digests the latest scientific innovations in eye research using simple and understandable terms. I am your host, Thales Guimarães, medical doctor and clinician scientist at Northfield's Eye Hospital. It is a great, immense pleasure to have you here with me. In this episode, we'll be talking about something that many people are unaware exists, high-altitude retinopathy. Now, I know exactly what's on your mind right now. Thales, last week you discussed solar retinopathy and all the short and long-term issues that gazing at eclipses or just a regular prolonged day in the beach can cause. And now you're going to tell me that there's a disease that may happen when I'm having a nice vacation in a high-altitude place, which is usually cold? Are you kidding me? And do you want to shatter my dreams? <laughs> I know, okay? I know. And before you call me the harbinger of chaos, right? Hear me out first. Remember that we talk all about eyes and... One of the major things that we do is raise awareness to diseases that uh, are not very widely recognized, right? Given the importance of this subject and how much unaware people are of it, I feel that we also need to shed a little bit of light in this. So in the next 10 to 15 minutes, we'll be talking about everything there is to know or most of it about high-altitude retinopathy. But before we go there, let's talk about high altitude in general, right? Going to high altitudes are known to cause a variety of illnesses. And we actually have an umbrella term for this group of illnesses, and you guessed, <laughs> high altitude illness. Now, depending on the part of the body that's affected, you can have different names for these syndromes, right? So, for instance, we have acute mountain sickness, right, which affects the general well-being of the person, so causes uh, things like fatigue, nausea, muscular pain, dizziness, and other symptoms like that, so pretty much unspecific and affect the body as a whole. Some people describe it, some people that had it, right, particularly climbers, they describe that as having a hangover, right. Then we also have high-altitude pulmonary edema, that's when it causes swelling of the lungs. Now, this can be fatal and rapidly, actually. So, it's very important to recognize this early. Then, if it affects the brain, you also have high-altitude cerebral edema, right? Which is when it causes swelling in the brain. And, of course, you have a, a, another type of syndrome, which is when it affects the retina, high-altitude retinopathy which, if you're new to this podcast, is this film-like tissue that we have in the back of our eyes that has many millions of light-sensitive cells, which we call photoreceptors, right? And we have two types, the rods and the cones, which are responsible for processing of the photons of light that come inside our eyes. Hence, these are essential for vision. But... The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC in short, recognizes the first three forms of high-altitude illness syndrome, so acute mountain sickness, high-altitude pulmonary edema, and high-altitude cerebral edema, uh, although it can also affect the retina. So, you can read more about the non-ocular forms in the CDC website or in other online sources. There's plenty of information over there. 
Now, why do this happen, right? Let's understand the mechanism of this. Well, these high altitude illnesses, they happen because of the hyperbaric nature of high altitudes, right? So in other words, a lowering of atmospheric or barometric pressure. Individuals get essentially hyperbaric hypoxia. Hypoxia meaning low oxygen, and that's exactly what it is, right? In high altitudes, there's a reduced partial pressure of oxygen, which we call PO2 in short, which can lower the arterial oxygen saturation, which is a measure of how much hemoglobin is currently bound to oxygen compared to how much hemoglobin remains unbound. So in places that go above the 3,000 meter altitude range, like for example the Colorado ski resorts for people in the West, or uh, from South America where I'm from, in Cusco, Peru, or La Paz, Bolivia, you essentially have this scenario where the PO2 reduces more than 30 to 40% of what it is at sea level. Now the consequences of having this hypoxic stress or in other words, literally, lack of oxygen depend on the rate of the ascent, the duration of the exposure, and the elevation or how high the altitude is. And this happens because of a compensatory mechanism of the body to boost the delivery of oxygen to vital organs. Because remember, when you are at a high altitude, you have a reduced partial pressure of oxygen. The body compensates that by activating some mechanisms to deliver oxygen to organs that are crucial uh, for us to uh, function as a human being, right? But let's, let's focus on the eye now, and don't forget you can uh, Google search to find uh, the other forms of non-ocular high-altitude syndromes, and you can also uh, look in official sources like the CDC. But let's focus on the eye now. The first description of high-altitude retinopathy, and I don't claim specialism, but I, <laughs> I've looked very hard. I've done my research. So we think that I think the first description of high-altitude retinopathy comes from a paper in 1969, where... Uh, this researcher examined a, a big group of more than 1,900 patients diagnosed with acute mountain sickness after ascending to between 3,000 to 5,000 meters above sea level approximately. In this group of patients, he noticed dilation and increased tortuosities of the vessels in the back of the eye carrying blood, right? Along with hemorrhages in the retina in 24 cases. Now, you may say that's not a lot, and you would be correct. That's around 1.5% of cases, a little bit less than that even. Hence, it's rarer than the other types of high-altitude syndromes, and it may be one of the reasons why it's not officially recognized as a syndrome. Now, high-altitude retinopathy is self-limiting, self-limited, and usually asymptomatic. But some patients may indeed experience decreased vision in both eyes or sometimes in only one eye. The disease typically occurs when individuals ascend rapidly above 2,500 meters, right? Most manifestations resolve spontaneously after descent. That's not to say that, you know, this is always mild, as some severe manifestations can also appear, such as, for example, inflammation of the optic nerve, which we call optic neuropathy, or occlusion, 
right? Obstruction of very important vessels in the retina, such as a large vein or artery, right? When these happen, the recovery tends to be poor and not complete. Patients may not recover their entire vision. But you may be tempted to ask now, right? And you'll be right to ask this question. What is the chance someone like me would get this? And you know, it really depends on how rapid is your ascent. What is the duration of your exposure? And also it seems that some research points out that some genetic factors may be involved in this as well. It seems to be more frequent in younger individuals than older adults, but it's hard to calculate its incidence because it varies quite a bit between the reports. In some studies, retinal hemorrhages were reported in half of 39 patients after staying in 5,300 meters high right, of altitude. And another study reported an incidence of almost 80% in a group of 28 climbers during a longer expedition in Mount Mustagaata. And I hope I, <laughs> I said that one right, uh, which has a peak of around 7,500 uh, 7, meters, quite high. So that's a quite high incidence, right, of hemorrhages. We're talking about 80%, okay? Again, we think these consequences to the retina and other parts of the body happen as a compensatory mechanism to the hypobaric environment of high-altitude places that these climbers and these expeditionaries uh, are exposed to. So, very simplistically, right, the reduced oxygen would cause an increased blood flow to the retina with the dilation of vessels. And again, remember, this is a compensatory mechanism. So, you have reduced oxygen, the body dilates the vessels to try to bring more oxygen to the crucial tissues, the retina being amongst those. This may lead to interretinal hemorrhages because of the huge flow of blood and sometimes papilledema which essentially means swelling of the optic nerve head. These can be irreversible, right? This can cause irreversible damage in the visual field or in the retina. Right, so how do you treat these lesions, right? The good news is that typically no intervention is required and the prognosis tends to be favorable in patients regaining their vision in the weeks after the scent, right? So they typically have a decreased vision. As soon as they do their descent, their vision tends to come back to normal in a few weeks. There have been some reports in the past suggesting that some drugs, like for example diuretics, right, which is a drug drugs used to reduce the um, the arterial pressure, right, anti-inflammatory drugs, even steroids have been postulated before that they may help. But the evidence is limited, right? Most of this evidence comes from case reports. We really don't, we, we don't know how to manage this and there's not much that we can do, actually. A report from 2014 suggests that hyperbaric oxygen may also help, but you know, this is a single case report. It's very difficult to establish causality and treatment response with a single case, right? It's very limited uh, what you can get with this, what kind of information and how relevant it is. There can be, however, cases of a more severe manifestation, as we just discussed, like arterial or vein occlusions. So, you know, uh, these are things that may not 
and maybe permanent, right? You may have permanent damage to your retina with this. So the best way to avoid trouble is by preventing these conditions to happen. How do you prevent this, right? And one word, <laughs> acclimatization, right? So that means allowing your body to get used to the environment that you are, to that environment of reduced hyperbaric pressure, to a reduced partial pressure of oxygen, right? And this, you know, uh, this takes around two to three nights. That's what uh, it's recommended. So what I mean by acclimatization is that gradual and slow ascent to the altitude that you're going. So go up slowly. For instance, acclimatizing for a minimum of two to three nights at around 2,500 meters before proceeding to a higher elevation. Avoiding alcohol, right, for the first 48 hours of elevation. And also reducing physical activities, exercise in the first 48 hours as well. So when you get to the altitude, do not do any physical activities in the first two days. If the symptoms progress, the recommended action is to immediately descend to the baseline altitude, which may or may not be at sea level, right, depends on where you live, where you're coming from. As you can see, not much is known about high-altitude retinopathy, uh, and it's pretty unrecognized. But it is important to understand that this is a part of a spectrum of changes that can cause bigger concerns, such as, for example, pulmonary edema or even brain swelling. I hope this gives you uh, a better way to plan your trip to a high-altitude destination. Speaking of which, there are plenty of resources on how to plan this kind of trip online. So make sure you check them out in advance. And by the way, guys, please share and like this episode. Follow us on social media accounts. Uh, our handle is at Eyes on Research. Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you name it, we have it. So make sure to follow us. We post short videos all the time. These, uh, these short videos did not go on to become a full episode, so I think it's quite nice to check them out there. Um, also, you can check our website, www.eyesonresearch.org, where you can find ways to support us. It's very much optional, but highly appreciated. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you soon. Bye-bye.